You're listening to Just Asking. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet, when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality, and certainly don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng uh, with Just Asking, and today I'm talking with my friend Jackie about all things uh, related to sexuality, and specifically, what are we talking about today? Well, one of the things that we talk about a lot is abuse and the idea of living in an abuse-free life. Um, but I think oftentimes people um, equate abuse with conflict, and I'd like your thoughts on that. Now, why would we, who talk about <laughs> sexuality, talk about abuse-free living or abuse-free conflict? Because we should all aspire to an <laughs> abuse-free life. Because it's the right thing to do. I'm thinking there's a more uh, uh, selfish reason why that would resonate with more with guys who think like me, at least, because I need something selfish to grab a hold of. <laughs> and it's that uh, whenever when we're talking uh, about sexuality, frequently the concept of mating comes up or mate selection and that whole idea of living happily ever after, although men and women may come at it from a different angle or individuals may come at it from two different angles. We, we all want that happily ever after sort of thing that is going to work for all of us. And for me, uh, when I think of two individuals, and we're going to leave polyamory out of this conversation for right now because that will make it a lot more Makes complicated. Makes yes. But in just, for just two people coming together, they're forming a strategic alliance in order to solve life's problems together by pooling their resources and um, overcoming challenges as a team. That whole concept, if people buy into that, and I think, I think it is why our species does family and why we form couples, I think the idea behind all that uh, that makes it work is that we have a free flow of information so that we can solve problems. Because nowadays, especially, it's more critical because I, the last thing I need a woman for in my life is uh, because the mule died and I need somebody to pull that plow, right? And the, <laughs> last thing a, <laughs> and the last thing a woman needs is some man to... Uh, actually earn a living for her while she's washing dishes and doing all that kind of stuff because men and women today, we can make our own livings and we all can function in a kitchen or at least order takeout. And we all know uh, how to take care of our laundry by either doing it ourselves or taking it to the dry cleaner. So it's really, there's really just one reason for us to get together and that's to have a really great life together, sharing and building a mutual happiness. Uh, there's a problem, though, in that uh, conflict is an essential and inevitable part of every intimate relationship. So I'm going to have I'm going to have fights with whoever it is I fall in love with, and no matter how much I sincerely love her, I'm going to end up arguing with her about things because I, even if we just use a physical metaphor, whenever any two people get closer and closer and closer, it's inevitable that someone is going to step on the other person's toes. Just to be a little bit nitpicky here, um, do we have to call them fights? 
Oh, okay. So yeah, a lot of people object to my use of the word fight. Uh, we could call it conflict. We could call it argument. Dis disagreement. Disagreements, discussions. We could sanitize it and scrub it in so many ways. But but our, our search for a, a more comfortable word, I think, grows out of our discomfort with our, his, our own history of conflict. Uh, because when we think of fights, and, and some people react the same way to the word arguments, we're not having an argument. We're having a discussion. <laughs> Try to remember that. Uh, I think our discomfort around this is because of our own history of experiencing abuse. And by abuse, I don't mean the knockdown, drag out kind of abuse, although that certainly would be included. But in most homes in America, there's some degree of abuse that, of an emotional level. Uh, verbal abuse that includes maybe... Maybe not even at the lowest level, not even raising my voice, but using a dismissive or uh, pejorative tone of voice, the kind of voice that is uh, implying at the end of every sentence the words, you moron, <laughs> <laughs> you bird brain, how dare you think what you're thinking because that's so stupid. And that hurts. You know, that, that hurts when the person I love uses that tone of voice with me or I with her. And that is abuse. And what makes it abuse is that it's disrespectful and it's not the way we are supposed to be treating one another. So this mistreatment of each other is automatically abuse. If it's not respect, it's abuse. And the problem, I think, when I try to talk to people about this concept, I really have to ease into it, Jackie, because nobody that I talk to has experienced an abuse-free history. So we tend to normalize abuse as, um, well, he got really upset or, well, she, she really lost her temper. And those rather folksy ways of describing the event really obscure and minimize the fact that um, they were yelling, they were screaming, they were hitting. They use name calling. They use put downs. Well, the stuff I'm talking about before the hitting gets started, if if we could use a sexual metaphor, the stuff I'm talking about would be the foreplay. Okay. So before. So so this is something that you could argue is not abuse. Obviously, physical. It's not physical it's abuse. It's not physical. Okay. Yeah, um, because I haven't even punched a wall. Maybe I'm not throwing an ashtray across the room or something like that. But I'm um, when I step into her body space. In a, in a, with a angry face and all those micro gestures in my face and maybe even my fists clenched. I haven't laid a hand on her, but my, all of my body language is, is threatening and it's intimidating. And it, it's going to come a shock, as a shock to the women listening to this, but we men are very intimidated by some of the angry behavior women have. So I know, you know, in general... Women are much smaller and, and more adorable than the men they're with. But even a big, strong man can be very intimidated by uh, a rather dismissive Leona Helmsley kind of glance well, from we, his wife or girlfriend. Um, and I've had this conversation with men and with women. And I know that we can be very mean 
women. <laughs> You're speaking on behalf of all women. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking on behalf of all women. Um, you know, I was talking to a, a man who was who was struggling in his marriage, and he said, she's so mean. She's so mean to me. And I said, yeah, I was pretty mean when I was leaving my marriage, too. Because it was. It's like, it, it's it's your way of, I, I know I can't, I'm not physically stronger. I'm not physically stronger, and if that's a fist fight, I'm going to lose. Right. But I can right. dismantle somebody right. with my voice, with my words. Right, and... We all know intuitively how to do that. Maybe not all of us. That's an exaggeration. But most of us know the sensitive spots, um, you know, when he's trying to put her down uh, or pay her back or she's trying to teach him a lesson or all these euphemisms we have for abusive behavior. And, you know, the in talking about fair fighting or conflict resolution, which are, you know, kind of dreary terms, I think the hardest thing for people who are listening to this kind of thing or for the people who need to hear it and need to apply it in their lives is is to get the idea in their life, number one, that abuse is abuse is abuse. And number two, that an abuse-free life is a very possible alternative future, that, that we could have an abuse-free life, but we're going to have to work for it. We're going to have to make that happen because teaching people how to fight fair is something, well, that literally has to be taught. It's not something that we just grow up knowing how to do. It's a social skill and it's vital because, again, getting back to that earlier idea of the two of us being in a, a strategic alliance, if I make it so intimidating for you to share your truth with me, the truth that you weren't happy the way last Christmas went, or you weren't happy yesterday when I spoke to you in that tone of voice. If I make it impossible for you to safely disclose that information, then you're going to withhold the information. And the whole reason for our getting together, in order to be happy, that is, that that becomes negated. So this is what I see happening. Men and women both refrain from sharing their truth, refrain from sharing how hurt or upset or angry they were when such and such a thing happened. And then uh, the, and, and they, they refrain from sharing that in an attempt to save the relationship because we don't want to fight. That would be a bad thing. And now I've pretty much destroyed the very thing I was trying to save by withholding the information. And then that becomes a pattern over months and then years. And pretty soon we just have two people who are cohabitating but really aren't a partnership because they're not really exchanging information. It's it's almost like some presidents with their vice president where they don't share information. And uh, then when the president really needs a, a partner, uh, the vice president is left with his hands in his pocket not knowing what to do. So do you think, um, and, I, and I will say right now at this point in my life, I live an abuse-free life. I am also not in a romantic relationship, which makes it much, much easier to do. Um, but one of the things I realized, though, is, is controlling myself, is because is, that's the one thing I can control. So I do have coworkers, friends, my children, parents, people I, I interact with. I am trying, working really hard to be more open to them and to make sure exactly what you're saying that they feel comfortable and free talking to me. And like my son this morning, I said, do you want to go do this thing tonight? And he said to me, my teenager, 
are you giving me a choice or, or not? And I said, yes, this is a choice. And he's like, no, then I don't want to go. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, that was easy. Right? I mean, and that's an easy one. But the fact that he felt comfortable asking me that rather than just feeling obligated. Right. So I, I think, I mean, back to one of the things, one of your common themes as well is, is when you control yourself is a start on this. Well, absolutely. And I was just like you. I remember um, I was uh, divorced some decades back and I was living alone for the first time in, in 20 years. And I remember waking up one day and, and just listening to the quiet in the house and realizing that I did have an abuse-free life and it really felt great. It feels amazing. You guys should all go for this. <laughs> it's amazing. Do not go out and get a divorce just to have this no, experience. No, no. Fix what you have. <laughs> but I, I remember thinking, you know, any woman who comes into my future brings with her the potential for really raising um, the level of the quality of my life or really taking it down several notches and that uh, unlike in my first marriage uh, the second time around I know I needed to be much more careful and much more intentional about this and so I, I resolved in my own mind that I needed to find a partner who had the courage to confront me when she thought I was out of line or wrong about something um, because I need that feedback because I'm not a mind reader and I'm not always self-aware and I also make mistakes. So I want a partner who has my back, but at the same time, I want a partner and I need a partner who knows how to do that, who has the savoir-faire how to do that uh, without abusing me, you know, without putting me down. Well, that was the stupidest thing I ever saw. Why in the hell did you do that? I don't need to be talked to that way. Or I, even uh, somebody who's, who's willing to say it at all. You know, because I and I and I have been told I have a very um, overwhelming personality sometimes, and so I've never noticed. That. <laughs> and so sometimes people and I and I have to be aware of that, so that somebody who comes into my realm that they that I encourage them to tell me and to tell me when I'm wrong and to, you know, because they may not. Well, to me, that's that's kind of the joy of intimacy is that I want to be able to have a partner in my life, and thank God today I do, who. When I push, she can push back a bit. And this is not to say when I get abusive, she can give it right back to me because I'm committed to an abuse-free life. So I don't dish out abuse. But the second part of that commitment is I don't tolerate abuse. Right. And if either one of us think the other has been abusive or disrespectful, because that's where it starts, right? It doesn't start with a fist going through a wall normally. Uh, we have to work up to that kind of a display. Um, it usually starts with just thoughtless words or a contemptuous tone of voice that we weren't aware we were using. And through that kind of feedback we get from other people, uh, I have found that I get more self-aware, more conscientious about my tone, and I've become more intentional about being respectful of people. And, and the whole re there's some brain science behind this, too, because if I'm treating you respectfully, we can stay, both of us can stay in our prefrontal cortex where all the smart part of our brain resides. Right. But the moment I just even a, a micro gesture from my face where I'm intimidating or I'm clearly contemptuous, we all react by going right into the amygdala where it's about fight or flight. 
Yet at the same time, we're stuck in the room and we're trying to think, but we're not thinking. And we're certainly not thinking at our best. So if a couple out there is having problems with finances or raising children or where do we go with this marriage, um, that problem is not going to get better with the addition of a judicious amount of abuse. Having an abuse-free life, and I do think 100% abuse-free is possible, and I'm saying that to those people who don't believe me right now, it is possible, but it's a skill, and we have to get to that point. Well, and it has to be a conscious goal. Yes. I, I, I'm sure that a lot of people don't even think about that. I, right. I know um, in one of my relationships, um, we would both pick at each other constantly, and it was constant one-upsmanship. No physical abuse, but we were constantly, both of us. And I didn't even realize until after I was in the relationship when one of my friends said, God, he was so mean to you. Mm. I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. You know, I had gotten so used to it. Well, we normalize it, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's one of the great strengths of our species is that we are so supremely adaptive. We can get used to anything. People have gotten used to the most horrific conditions. And that's why I, when it comes to this part of fair fighting and learning how to uh, have healthy conflict, uh, whatever we're going to call it, whether it's healthy fighting or healthy conflict or healthy discussions, um, I think it's important that we find out how to live the abuse-free life first, and that starts with awareness, and then a personal desire to not have an abusive life, and then a personal commitment, not to my partner, but to myself, because that's not really the kind of person I wanted to grow up to be. I didn't want to grow up to become big and strong and abusive. I, I want to be respectful of the people around me. And when we start getting abusive, normally what we do is, first of all, it's thoughtless, and then uh, perhaps the other person takes offense quite naturally and understandably. And quite understandably, they respond in kind to teach me a lesson or to try to get through to me. And then it's on and it's back and forth. And we have all these irrational beliefs that somehow make this okay. Um, and so for people who are dating, and, and ultimately this is all about sex, right? Because it comes back to mate selection. I like to see people embrace a rule of three. If they have it clearly in their mind that conflict is an essential and inevitable part of every intimate relationship, they know that no matter how in love they may be with the other, and no, no matter how adorable they may find their partner to be. It's only a matter of time before any two intelligent people sharing a life are going to have somebody stepping on the other person's toes. And so I want to uh, take her out for a spin and see how she handles abuse, not by artificially provoking a fight, by simply waiting, you know, and doing some watchful waiting for uh, our first fight with the idea that I'm going to let her know what I'm looking for. I, I remember when I was dating, I was always telling women when that inevitable conversation would come up, well, what are you looking for? Well, what are you looking for? And I would, I'm looking for an abuse-free life I can share with someone where we can both be based in a relationship based on equality. And by that I mean, even if she didn't say, what do you mean? I could say, well, and I'd like to be able to fight fairly without any abuse. And, um, by, and for me, that rule of three means I'm going to have try to have three fights 
with a significant other, someone who's applying for a leading role in my life epic romance, so that we have at least three fights before we're making commitments uh, where we can fight about. It could be something personal, like uh, you were late picking me up, or it could be something political, or it could be something religious or something social, um, about some social faux pas or perceived faux pas. Uh, but whatever it is, I want to see not what it is we're fighting about, but maybe more about how are we fighting. And it's funny, I had a, um, an experience with a man I met on um, online dating, which I know you approve of. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd gone out five or six times, and he was, he was very attractive. Very, I mean, he was a good, he was a good catch on paper. Um, but we would talk, and he agreed with everything I said. Right. Everything I said, he would say, yeah, that makes sense. And finally, and I knew that we disagreed on politics, and so one day I just, like, threw it out there, you know, to give him something to come back at me with. And he was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, uh, I'm out. Right, because you know, I was like, when someone's glad-handing me like that, and it's so obvious that they're just doing willing to make any compromise to make the relationship work, the problem with that is I'm going to feel inevitably lonely in that echo chamber where it's all about steving, and I'm always right, and, and as soon as you come to my line of thinking, you'll be right too. Well, and the thing is, is that I know that I'm not always right. Right. So, so that if you're not willing to tell me that, then I don't have what you're talking about. I don't have a partner. I don't have somebody who has my back. Right. You know, they're going to let me go out and make a fool out of myself. And, and, and what's really great about this in partnership or a, even a potential partnership is when the other person says, yeah, I don't really see it that way. Um, it's not necessarily true that I'm wrong, but it could be just as likely that there's more to what is going on in this situation and there's a truth I haven't yet seen and wow is that a mind-blowing wonderful experience to realize oh I was missing a big part of this this is one of my favorite things and people don't believe me but one of my favorite things is when somebody explains to me that I haven't seen something you know in a different way and they tell me why intelligently Right. With facts. Instead of saying you dummy. Instead of telling me how stupid I am. Right. Just saying, you know, have you considered, have you considered this perspective? And it's like, I have not. Thank yeah. you. This is one of the things I adore about my son. You know, he's doing this constantly. And it's like, oh, good, good point. Yeah. Well, okay. Lucky you. You have the perfect son. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I have two perfect sons. <laughs> but I was not the perfect son. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't grow up knowing how to do this. And your son has had you for a parent, and he's very fortunate in that. But I remember going into uh, my early dating years and my tw 20s and just being very, very much what you were talking about earlier with that other guy. I remember going into my early 20s with an emotional neediness that made it really impossible for me to, to have a, an argument based on a foundation of equality where there was a, a give and a take between two intellectual equals. And by intellectual equal, I don't mean necessarily that we're each equally matched IQ-wise or uh, even educationally, but that we can be matched in terms of equal respect. So I think being able, for a parent to be able to practice this with a child and to have a bit of an argument, I mean, how glorious is that? Because that means I'm not raising a wimp. My kid has learned how to stand up for himself or herself. 
and that they know how to talk about what it is that's important to them instead of just docilely nodding their head and saying yes whatever you think and it does make you better because these 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 people come from a different generation than you do so they understand things differently than you do and they have access to information that you don't so the idea that your children can't give you new information just because you're older than them is kind of ridiculous yes and that but that family system that that you just described where the children are to be seen and not heard what it does it may create a wonderful old-fashioned family atmosphere stepford family <laughs> yeah and it, and there's still psychologists out there who promote that idea that children should be seen and not heard children should be obedient yes at all times <laughs> at all times and just say yes sir sir <laughs> but i think what we're failing to do then in that kind of an environment is to teach our children how to stand up for themselves and to articulate their own intellectual arguments when there's an argument to be made and even for me as a an older man parenting young children there were plenty of times i made mistakes and getting feedback from children didn't necessarily um, mean i was going to do something different but it did mean i was going to be doing whatever I was doing as a father with a more informed perspective and maybe a more restrained uh, point of view. So let me ask you this. Um, we've covered a lot about choosing an abuse-free life, why we should have an abuse-free life. I'm wondering if it would make sense for us to come back and talk about how to, how to have healthy conflict, how to talk to another person who we disagree with. Yeah, I think um, that's like its own separate conversation because, but, and, and I couldn't agree more that we need to have that conversation and explain to people how they too can get to an abuse free lifestyle. But for today, I just, I can't emphasize enough that it's so important for people who've never experienced an abuse free life to grab a hold of that vision as an achievable, attainable way of living because it is. Absolutely it is, and it is marvelous. I am a fan. <laughs> so when we come back, we will talk about how to have an abuse-free life, how to have healthy conflict. If you have questions, please send them to us um, on Twitter at Stephen Ng MFT. Thank you for listening. This has been a production by Ng Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Bichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit Stephen Ng dot com.